Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Today's podcast, we sit down and talk with Shane Moore. He's a wildlife cinematographer based out of Jackson, Wyoming. And man, Shane has done some really cool stuff. We sat down and we started talking and it was just too good not to record. So there's not a traditional intro. This is the intro. Stay tuned. We're going to cut right into our conversation and you are going to learn a ton of stuff about a lot of the cool things Shane has done over the course of his career and he continues to do. When I asked you to do this podcast, I, I we met what a long time ago, twenty years ago yeah. or something in Yellowstone. In Yellowstone, and then since then you've done like oh my gosh, you just go through the list of credits. So, how much of your stuff is? Can you put a number? Like you got BBC, you got Disney Nature, Nat Geo. I mean, there's all the different ones. Is it? Is there a percentage that you work with, or is it just you take it as you get it and you just never know year to year? Yeah, it varies a lot. And it's uh, a lot of the wildlife film industry is based in Bristol, England. That's just, that's that's the center of it. Um, but there's also in America that we, we do a little bit, not as much. PBS does some, National Geographic, Discovery. They're the main players, but uh, yeah, the center of the wildlife film world is definitely in Bristol, England. So. And how does that work? BBC will produce something too and then just sell it to Discovery, right? So it could even be done through the BBC, but it's just running on Discovery. Is that, I'm assuming that. I don't know. Exactly. Most, if you see, if you see wildlife uh, films on television on Discovery Channel or, or whatever channel in the U.S., it was probably more than likely made by the BBC or a British company. Uh, the BBC, I think, uh, got too big, so they recently, you know, created a lot of independence. And a lot of, it's a lot of the same people over there. Um, but, yeah, they just they seem to live and breathe wildlife and nature films. But also uh, the Europeans are a lot more interested in wildlife. Um, Austria is a big market, France. Uh, sadly for me, you know, the U.S. is kind of the smallest part of the market. We just don't seem to be that interested in wildlife. Do you think it's because they don't have as much wildlife and so they appreciate the fact that we have it and they don't? I think that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think we might take it a little bit for granted here and that's kind of unfortunate. Um, you know, and you know, for the British to even contemplate having something, some big animal like a moose, you know, they're just they're pretty much gone there. So of course they have no bears and no big predators. So we're very fortunate, but we shouldn't take it for granted. Right, exactly. So I was doing a shoot in Italy, and we were, I don't know, remember what we were doing exactly, but I was like, can, what can wildlife can we go see? And they're like, oh, well, we have Tweety Birds, <laughs> and we have, what is it, chamois? But the, it was few and far between. It just wasn't, you know, I'm sure it's, that was probably five or six or ten years ago now. So I'm sure it's improving because I think they're thinking more that way. I mean, I see some stuff on Instagram that comes up where this is a bear in, I don't know, Finland or, uh, you know, wolves in some, you know, Alps somewhere. So I think that stuff's coming back, but nowhere near what we have. And it's so populated over there. I don't know how you could have a really true wild population. Or maybe you can. I, I'm not speaking from experience. Yeah, it's uh, – I, I definitely – 
I definitely, I feel bad how, how often, especially if you live in some of these wild places in America, like we're lucky I'm from Wyoming and I know you're from Colorado and we spend a lot of time in Alaska. You can get a false sense of just what the world really looks like. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, boy, I pinch myself, you know, regularly, especially when you go to those other places and you just see it's humanity just about everywhere. Right. Well, let's talk about that. So, you grew up in Wyoming. How did you decide, hey, I want to go be a wildlife cin- cinematographer? Was that something that you dreamt of as a kid? Or, like, I didn't even know that was a possibility. I wasn't ever educated in that. So I didn't know until I was, you know, past my, probably in my 20s. Did you know early on that that was something you wanted to pursue? Or was that something that you kind of learned about over time? I, I well, just complete luck. Dumb luck is what it was. I grew up on a ranch uh, about about. 40 miles from Jackson in a very beautiful area in the mountains. And at that time, wildlife film, you know, wildlife film companies like, you know, Walt Disney and Wild Kingdom would come there uh, to film, film animals. And they often stayed our ranch. Mm-hmm. So as a little kid, that was, uh, that was right out my front door. And it was always a lot more interesting to see what they were up to than, than milking the cows for sure. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, and, but I was really lucky to mentor for a very famous filmmaker, Wolfgang Bayer. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, as a teenager, he, he, I don't know why he took me under his wing. And so I was really lucky to, to get my foot in the door that way. That's awesome. So you obviously had a appreciation for wildlife anyway. Just, I think I grew up in the woods too. And I think you just grow up around that stuff and you're like, ah, oh, this is so cool. I want a job that keeps me here, whatever that is. You happen to get the the creme de la creme of the job, you know, the situations that put you in the right place at the right time. How did you start out? I mean, obviously you had the mentor and then did you go to college for it too? Sort of. Um, I I really, I wanted to go to Brooks Institute of Photography at the time. There wasn't a lot of places that did anything like what I wanted to do, which was wildlife. Right. Um, But I found it didn't really fit uh, there's there's no place to go and learn how to make wildlife films. I think that's changed a little bit, fortunately, now. Now there are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think almost everyone in this business that I know has got into it in a different way. There's no one way. Right. The common thread seems to be passion for being out there. I mean, it's not rocket science. Uh, once you get to learning about the camera, it's, it's the passion to be out and, and photographing something you really enjoy. Right. Do you remember your first gig? <laughs> yeah, my first gig. Uh, well, they, yeah, it was on the ranch, actually. And uh, they had, I'm a little embarrassed. In the <laughs> early days of the wildlife film business, there was a lot of captive animals. Right. So they brought captive beavers to our ranch. And my job was to feed the beavers and make sure they didn't escape and uh, help with filming of the beavers. So I was running around in a swamp with my with my dog and a big salmon net catching beavers and putting them back in their pens and whatnot. So yeah, kind of embarrassing. Fortunately, I think the, the days of working with tame animals, you know, went away pretty quickly. And Mm -hmm. so by the eighties I got to work with wildlife, which was what I really enjoyed for sure. And then when you started out, so you had this mentorship, so you had someone kind of, you can watch somebody and you can kind of learn and you probably get a lot of advice, but, you're starting what back then it was all film right so you're what 16 millimeter film or something exactly what was the first gig where you were like your own dp or you were out doing your thing 
I mean, I know you did some early stuff in Denali, but there was probably something before that, right? Right. The first the first gig was uh, was I decided okay, I've just got to buy my own camera and start this thing. And it was hard, even at that time, it was much harder than it is today because film cameras were so expensive. Mm-hmm. And and I remember I bought this camera called a Gizmo, and it, and it was used, and it was a piece of junk, and it was still twelve <laughs> grand. And tripods were three thousand dollars. So right. as a young person, it was just a huge expense, and I was I was you know you know spent years saving to buy that camera. And then once I got the camera, I really couldn't afford to buy much film because it was still $100 for a 10-minute roll of film and then $100 to process. Right. So I'd have to go work for three months and then make some money and then go up in the mountains and and chase mountain goats. And fortunately, I made made my first film and and it just kept going from there. It's so hard. I mean, I do a lot of the stuff and just to think about making a film, especially at that age and being young and just... Did you have a plan? Did you have? Did you sit down and write it all out and sketch it? I, you have to with film, right? right? Because you can't just willy-nilly just hit record and just let it roll, right? How did that work? How did you decide to, this is what I'm going to film, this is the story I'm going to tell, this is what I'm going to produce? Well, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, I, I, I tried to sit down, tried to think of a story, and I read this great book. I read I read Doug Chadwick's book, A Beast the Color of Winter. And uh-huh. I just thought, oh, I was just so taken with mountain goats and that wild country. So that was that was sort of the basis of the film I wanted to make. And I I you know really need to thank him for getting me started. And so then I just go up in the mountains and, and hang with mountain goats. But the thing I learned is the way video is different than stills is you need to tell you need to shoot a sequence. The goal isn't a pretty shot. Uh, you end up with a montage, and that doesn't really tell a story. So right. learning to try and get shots that actually cut together, um, that's the art. And that's uh, and I, I learned the hard way. That's It's very difficult with wildlife because ideally if you're trying to get shots that cut, you have different angles and different frame sizes. And we're often a long ways away, and you're always shooting on your longest lens. Right. So difficult. Um, I learned slowly what it takes to shoot uh, shoot things in a way that'll edit together. Could you describe that sequence? Uh, our audience often asks us, you know, how do I become a photographer? How do I become a cinematographer? How do I do that? And, you know, we try to give a lot of feedback in the podcast, and most of it's stills. Uh-huh. But when you say a sequence, you just kind of described it. But can you, like, describe three or four shots that, you you know, what you're looking at in a sequence? Like, are you talking wide, medium, tight? Are you talking, from your perspective, as a professional wildlife cinematographer that's done it all, right? What what do you see in a good sequence? And is it a certain number of shots, or is it do you you know that you can make a good sequence with three shots? Uh, yeah, the, when I say the sequence is the goal, it's it's uh, it can be anything from a few shots to to hundreds. Uh, so there's no, but it's it's telling a story with shots that cut together. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is uh, it, it's. I would encourage people that are trying to learn this to try and to sit down even with films and turn off the audio and think about why, why did they cut on exactly that frame? Because I'll assure you there's a reason. And, uh, and once you become a student of what makes a good edit, it's pretty easy to sit down with all our modern editing equipment and stick two shots together. But to really critically ask yourself, does that really work? Often you want to get different angles 
and you can kind of envision two shots laying together side by side that fit right. Uh, often, you know, as a simple rule, you want to try and change angle dramatically and change image size. Those two shots will usually cut pretty well. Right. Do you try to focus in on one individual and try to tell a story about that individual and how it, re- you know, that represents that whole species? Is that a, a tactic that you use a lot or do you just roll in and just shoot a bunch and try to get, you know, you can still tell the story without focusing in on one individual. And I know a lot of times in wildlife films, you can fake it, right? You can have three or four little bears that all look similar and it's, it cuts together and the audience doesn't know. But when you're doing that kind of stuff, do you really try to key in on one species or one uh, individual of a particular species and build a story around that? Or what do you have a process or does that, is that dictated by somebody else? Often we do pick an individual, and it's usually it's usually whoever I'm working for. They'll have us an ideal story that they want to tell. Oh, okay. Uh, so they may they may want to focus on one individual. Often, sometimes sometimes it's an old male or a youngster. It can be any of those, but try and tell a story, you know, from a certain animal's point of view. So that's usually the case. Um, Sometimes we change a lot. I mean, opportunity presents itself and you, you'll find a certain individual and the story unfolds. And yeah, you have to be very, very careful to keep our eyes and mind open because often the things just, something great will, will happen and you ha- kind of have to capitalize on it and then go from there and try and make sure you have all the elements to put that story together. I don't know if that really answered. No, it your... does. Do you do you have the ability in the field? So if if the production company that you're working for has said, okay, let's focus on this older individual, but you get there and you're like, man, it's this story is about this little youngster that's up and coming and just causing problems and doing this. Do you have the ability to to call him up or just make that call in the field and say, you know what, this is a way better story. We can still work the old individual into it but I can tell a much better story around that. Do you do that a lot? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're, we're definitely looking for unique ways to tell stories. And, you know, I've, I used to think I've, I've changed a lot in my views over time. I used to think, why do we need these sort of stories that are, you know, sort of spoon fed to people from a human point of view, but I've kind of come to realize that most people look at wildlife through a human lens anyway. Of course they do. So we try to stay, we try not to be anthropomorphic and, you know, put too much of our values in, into wildlife, but still tell a compelling story, you know, from an individual. So, you know, it's, we sometimes, you know, naming animals, I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with, but it makes the most sense to distinguish one from the other. And so it's just kind of where we end up going sometimes. I do that a lot. I mean, I, subconsciously you know if i'm out shooting something and it's just me all still i'm like i'm gonna go look for blah 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 yeah. whatever and i do it and i think everybody does it but you're right you don't you try not to put that human touch or that human emotion or that human feeling or that anthropomorphism on the animals but how can you not and i think the most important thing is is what we do tends to educate the masses. And if we can do a good job in that, then hopefully conservation follows and then all that just makes it better. But I think what we do helps and hurts. Interesting. In uh-huh. today's world with social media, it's like, I think we can love these places to death and we can love these animals to death. And you, you take a really awesome picture of a, I don't know, let's just say a bull moose or whatever. And everybody else is like, man, I want to do that. But they may not have the, the knowledge I'm not saying anybody could do it, but it just sometimes will take years to learn how to do it properly. And I think 
instant gratification on social media these days does not really lend itself to taking the time to figure it out. So I kind of think we create our own problems there, but yeah. but I also think that the benefit of the education far outweighs any negative that we get. I don't know. What do you think on that? I agree. And it concerns me a lot that I think uh, as photographers, we can tend to all, you know, gather in the same areas and filming similar things. Um, and I think a good answer to that is there's so much outside people's back doors. If they've really, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great subjects and, and I see just amazing work that, that blows me away that people are doing in their backyards or near their homes. So you don't have to have a huge budget and go someplace exotic. Uh, that's, that's the great thing. Often those things, they're under photographed and appreciated. So. Right. I think you can do stuff with like spiders. I mean, there's tons of stuff that you could do right in the backyard that has never been done. And it's right there. We talk about that a lot on the podcast as well. All right. So let's just fast forward to, we did how you became a wildlife photographer for your first assignment. How do you prepare for a shoot? So if, if BBC calls you up or Nat Geo calls you up and says, hey, we want you to go shoot snow leopards in China, Tibet, whatever. How do you prepare for something like that? I mean, you've probably been doing it so long now. It's not a lot of prep as far as the unknowns, but you still, I'm sure, have a lot of stuff that you have to to prepare and get ready for. And what what is that? How What's involved? The preparation is just huge part of it. And, and luckily, most of the people I work for, the British in particular, are very good at that. They have teams of researchers and, and they know the kind of questions to ask. You kind of have to try and be at the best place, the right time, with the right equipment. And and that's not easy to ha- to get all those things to come together. Right. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a huge amount of research. I think also just a sense of, of wildlife. If you kind of have a, an appreciation for wildlife, you can understand. Like often we don't work where animals are hunted because they're, they're just more afraid. And it's, right. It's challenging. So those sorts of things like what's probably going to be a good place, the best time of year, you can't, you can't miss the key behavior that you're trying to film. And you need to have a practical game plan in terms of how to how to get around, how to get near the animals, you know, how not to frighten them, and and then think about the equipment. Uh, so often it'll start months in advance planning, thinking what gear do we need. If sometimes you have to prepare gear, specialty items. So lots of work in advance. What's the length? What's the advance time? That do you generally know a year in advance? Hey, I'm going to be shooting in Alaska in August. In the year before in August? Is that how it works? Often, yeah, we're booked a year ahead. Really? So, yeah. And when I'm home, I'm, I'm often preparing gear. Then I'm worried. I'm, I'm always worried about the next one. It's like, what what do I need? And am I sure I've got the right gear? Is, is Are things going to be in place? So, yeah, it's, it's working well in advance. How do you do it? Do you work with their gear or do you work with your own gear or is it a mixture of both? That's changed a lot. The first 20 years of my career was with the same film camera. We shot with an Aeroflex. The thing was just reliable and so, and I owned it. Now uh, I'm shooting a lot of different gear. Almost every different job will be a different specialty camera. And that's a real challenge. It's It's good in the sense that you're using great technology, but all that technology takes time. Right. As you know, you need, right. you need to have muscle memory on, on every control on your camera and, and, and just learning the menu systems. Uh, it's, it's not easy. Right. <laughs> well, and I, th- I was watching uh, just shooting, and you're using a gimbal. You use the long lens on the tripod. There's some GoPros involved. There's 
I mean, just a variety of stuff, and and it's one person. I mean, basically, well, what's the size of the crew generally, right? I know that you're currently on an assignment that we're not going to discuss, but you're on an assignment here, and it's basically you and one other person, right? That's the that's the size of the field crew. I'm sure there's a huge crew behind you guys putting everything else together, but is that common, or do you oftentimes have three or four people going in the field or will you have a a camera and a b camera or it i'm sure you run into all of it yeah we run into all of it everywhere from from me being out by myself to maybe a crew of four or five sometimes two cameras there's no you know this kind of no each project kind of kind of dictates what it needs to have so quite a bit of variability there is it frustrating when you have to do everything yourself with all the different formats i mean i back in the days of film yeah, it's like what you said earlier, yeah. you know, you're just rolling one camera and maybe you have a variety of lenses or something, but it's the same. But now you can go from a little itty bitty GoPro to a great big red. I mean, is it frustrating to try to have to keep track of all that stuff? The problem is I feel really uncomfortable if I'm going out on a job and I don't feel competent on a piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always try and get them as far in advance as possible and just spend time in the menus and learn you know, you have to be proficient when you when you start in the field, and it's getting ever more complex. I'm shooting these big gimbals now, so right. those are highly complex, and you go in for training for those kinds of things. So, you've shot Planet Earth before. You've shot uh, Our Planet. All these really grandiose things that look super awesome on like a big IMAX screen, right? But most people are consuming on a television or even on an iPhone. Do these different formats really matter nowadays? Is it more important just to get a cool shot? Or is it still you want the highest quality possible and the cool shot and it that's going to make the best film? Or does it not matter anymore? Well, there's a little bit of both. But I think some people, I mean, we're all gear junkies. We tend to get caught up in, you know, the latest, greatest, you know, highest resolution. But the truth is... I mean, what people are shooting on their phone now is so much better than anything I shot for 90% of my career. The, the, the quality is not what's limiting what people can do. And the prices have come down to the point where really high-quality gear is accessible to people. Right. So, you know, if, if somebody's thinking, if they have a passion to do the project, you can get gear now pretty affordably. So it's a great time. So anybody that, in, in a way, it's it's level the playing field, which is great because people that are driven to, to do these types of things, tell these stories, can go do it. Do you have a favorite thing that you like to do? So if you're running a gimbal and you're running a you know, GoPro, let's say, is the bottom rung, you're running long lens on a red camera, you're running a DSLR. Do you have one of those that's just the favorite that's more intimate or you're just really good at it? Or is there one... Genre, or it's not a genre, but is there one piece of equipment that you're just like, man, I'm gonna, this is my favorite thing to do? <laughs> well, I probably shouldn't say when I get to go out with all this amazing high quality gear that I get the most excited running around with a GoPro, but I really love it, you know, <laughs> because a lot of it, sometimes you just dream about, you know, this shot coming together and you can see it in your mind and, and you can go put a GoPro there that, Maybe it'll get smashed by an animal, but, you know, it's, it's sacrificial. Yeah, I love that. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. So, yeah, we get to run really expensive gear, but but honestly, it's it's not about the gear. It's about the images, and, and, yeah, they can come on all kinds of small little cameras these days. Right. 
So, but you are way too humble to talk about it. Your ability behind a big lens is bar, I mean, it's got to be one of the top in the world these days. How hard was it to become that proficient? Is it just a time thing or is it just, you just had a knack for it? Is it just one of those things where you just, it just works for you? Long lens photography, it, it seems, it seems not that complicated, but then I see, you know, it's just, I've learned all the lessons the hard way. Mm-hmm. So, uh yeah, I guess I would advise that's the one thing where you can't really scrimp. You'll need a good lens and you'll need a good tripod. And and you then then learn you learn things like where to set up a tripod. It's amazing now, it's just sort of subconscious I'm looking for before I'm anywhere. Where can I put three legs down that'll be solid? Uh where can I have a windbreak? Often wind is what kills us with um with long lenses. The other real challenge is heat waves. So you really become a student of, of heat waves and how to avoid them. And part of that is just the time of day. But a lot of it, too, is is using the terrain so you're not shooting across flat flat areas that are low to the ground. So it's not rocket science, but um, it does take a little while, and it can be frustrating. And, and the main thing is keep your hands off of the camera. I think I see people latched on. Sometimes you can see people latch onto a tripod. I can watch footage on some TV and, and tell the person's pulse, and you go, oh, the guy blew it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, totally. Yeah. So. And I don't think uh, big lenses are, and video, there's not a lot of that going on. You know, whereas you look at big lenses and stills, right. there's a lot of that going on. There's not a lot of, well, and more and more people that, these DSLRs that are shooting video now, more and more people are like, oh, I want to try that out. But everybody I talk to, they're like, well, I'm using a traditional Wimberly-style gimbal right. for their still photography. And they're like, oh, I can't get a smooth pan. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you are not. You need a really good fluid head. Right. And you're probably going to spend as much as you spend on your lens on that tripod to make it actually work. And then you don't get the pulse or you don't get this shaky video. And I think what you said, hands off is the is the formula of the day to really make it successful right but then it's composing the shot that allows you to leave your hands off for as long as you can to have that really rock steady shot is that how it works well, well one of the you know, like when i first started with mountain goats i had to learn this lesson the hard way i'd try and film up a hill at a mountain goat and the spring on the tripod wanted to center it so strongly that i'd have to you know force the thing down and, and i'm shaking and then the footage is shaking and it doesn't work so then they came out with more advanced tripods that will balance at all angles of tilt and those that's just a huge revolution so basically get a secure base for your tripod and and then have your camera perfectly leveled so when you take fingers off it doesn't drift up or drift down at all so you're just barely touching it and only when you have to what is your favorite wildlife or species to shoot do you have one or could you even name one is it snow leopards is it monkeys is it is it anything like that where you're just like man i can't wait to go shoot that again uh you know the the list is long yeah and i really honestly can't pick a favorite because they're i'm just so amazed by so much wildlife and i've been so lucky I mean, of course, to get to film snow leopards. But, you know, honestly, it's I'm excited with whatever I'm filming at the time. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, it's birds in the backyard. So it doesn't have to be something big or exotic. I've been really lucky. About half of what I used to do was underwater. So oh. I spent a lot of time, a lot of time in the oceans, a lot of time in blue water, which is, uh, which is away from the coral reefs, filming often big animals. And that's just, fan. you know, I just 
I just love it. You feel a sense of adventure every time you duck your head How in. How do you get into that? How do you decide, being from Wyoming, Yeah. not even we're near an ocean, <clears throat> Right. how do you, like, dial into that? How do you, like, I'm going to learn how to, well, you have to learn how to scuba dive, right? Right. You have to be comfortable with the camera. I mean, you got to mix match all of these talents and then go down and do it. How do you do, how, what, what prompted you to do that? Most everything starts with me with wanting to wanting to do something. I'll see something. I'll see something underwater. I, you know, when I was you know, 18, I saw underwater footage. And, oh, my God, I've got to be a scuba diver. I've got to go see that. And then I got an opportunity to go. Uh, when I was 19, I got to go work with uh, Wolfgang Bayer in Micronesia and do a film on shipwrecks. And I was just blown away by underwater. And then sort of one job leads to another. And then I got into cave diving and had some... You know, wonderful, you know, it's just, and I didn't think, I didn't think I'd really want to, you know, get into cave diving, but then I poked my head in a cave and I was just so totally blown away by the experience. And I think a lot of it, you know, when I started, it's just, I'm awed by things, by nature usually, and you want to share that. I think that's where a lot of it comes from. I think I've since changed a little bit to try and be more of a storyteller rather than just convince everybody what I think is cool is cool, but... (laughs) That's that's kind of where it starts. How long did that take to convince to, to for your mindset to change that way? Did, was that a lot of years, or was that something that you figured out pretty quickly? It was a slow process, and I guess you know that's one thing. I think a lot of us start with, you know, a passion about something, and and we just want to convince others that they should they should feel the same way. And it's I learned that that's not a very good approach, really. I think it's better if you can start and think about the audience. Mm-hmm. And think about stories and, 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 and try to make something that's going to have broad appeal to a lot of people, be accessible. That's, that's kind of a better place to start than where I did. And, wow, these animals are amazing. Can't you see that? You know? So, yeah. You end up being a jack of all trades, right? Because, well, for you, you're a pilot as far as a drone goes. You can scuba dive. You're a captain of your own You've got, do you call it a boat? Or boat, do you call it, yeah. Okay, so you've got your own boat, but you're a captain there. And I'm sure you probably get paid in that capacity at some point with certain jobs. You've got to be a camera operator. You've got to be a sound engineer. I mean, how many hats do you, I mean, is that something that intrigues you and that's something that you just live for? Because doing what we do, it's not like you get one person for each one of those jobs. That I think it. you're way more valuable if you have all those skills right yeah uh i think it's it's yeah again most of it starts for me with uh you know unfortunately i i look at something and think wow i want to do that so i mean i remember the first drone footage i saw with this drone flying through the snowy forest and i thought oh my gosh you know for for years i'd been building cable cameras and trying to get tracking shots through the forest and it didn't really work that well. I just realized, oh my goodness, all my dreams. And I, I of course, I've got to learn to fly a drone. You know, it's so amazing, uh, the opportunities. So a lot of it just started that way. With the boat, yeah, I got to work in Alaska. And, and we started with my wife and I in a little Zodiac. And we were camping. And But then we were often cold and wet. And we we're looking <laughs> at people in these warm boats. And I thought, wow, if we had a boat, we could really, you know, stay out in wild places for long periods of time. So, uh, unfortunately, it's a terrible financial, uh, you know, decision, but, uh, 
it's uh it's just the the passion i think kind of keeps pushing us forward but you can't replace that i mean you can sit there and say it's a terrible financial decision but you can't put a value on just the experience that you're able to have right i mean you're you're probably i have no idea it's my dream and you you listen to the podcast i did with milo that is my that i have i don't know anything about the water i don't know anything about a boat but it's always been my number one dream to to have some sort of li- boat that's big enough to live on. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a big yacht. It yep. can be very basic. Right. But be able to cruise around like Southeast Alaska. I think you could probably spend months and months and months and never see the same thing twice. Right? Absolutely. I mean, and really it's, well, we, we've done it four times for different projects where we buy an old boat. And I mean, yeah, I'm talking, uh, you know, you can, people spend more for a vehicle than we spend for a boat <laughs> with an old diesel engine and, and put up to Alaska. And it's, it's, uh, it's not that expensive. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I'd encourage people to obviously not just jump in with no experience, try and get some good advice. Right. But it's not rocket science. Really? It's not. I'm telling you. Really? <laughs> I don't know. It's so scary. No, no, no. It's uh it's wonderful. And it's, it's the perfect, I feel, you know, I think when I'm on a boat and in, in Alaska, you know, anchor, you, you go from one amazing cove to the next and that's your view. Right. I mean, people would pay millions of dollars to right. have a house there and you get to change it every night. You know, it's just, you feel, you feel so rich and you are rich in, in not in financial sense, but in every other sense. Right. Right. Which at the end of the day, you can't take any of this money with you, right? That's right. How does that work? time-wise for your schedule do you traditionally have like summers off from from your shooting work or is there no rhyme or reason to that are you able to say okay i'm going to spend the next six weeks or eight weeks on the boat and we're cruising this part of alaska or do you fly in and fly out and and hop on the boat when you can yeah in the past we bought we would buy an old boat for uh for a year or two project and and just stay more or less on it, um, and then at the end sell it. And it's it's an old boat anyway, and well you know depreciated, so we didn't lose a lot of money, and that worked out fairly well. But now I found that I just I like it so much that we we finally bought a boat that we just want to keep in Alaska, and and spend as much time there as we can. So I still need to to earn a living, but um, hopefully spend close to half the year on the boat in Alaska. Right. That's pretty awesome. And and you're really working all the time anyways, right? Exactly. I mean, it's not like I've always told people that I I don't ever envision stopping unless I physically can't do it. I mean, it just seems like a job that you wouldn't you can do anywhere and as long as you're in a cool place, it doesn't really matter, right? That's right. That's you can right. work and you can capture all that beauty. What is it about being out in the water? Is it just that different place every night that is just so amazingly beautiful or is it the fact that you have these awesome opportunities every little place you go to capture a new site, I mean, footage or actual, you know, are you actually shooting or do you actually sit back and say, eh, I'm not even going to shoot today? Yeah, I, I, I don't do too well when I don't have a <laughs> goal. I, yeah, I right. really, yeah, I like to try and, uh, I probably, I wish I could just relax and not trying to film things at times, but, uh, yeah, it's such an important important part of what motivates me that I, yeah, I still have that drive. And so now I'm, um, uh, even though if I think, okay, I'm going to go take some time off on the boat, I'm still trying to think, okay, how am I going to line up the various things I want to photograph and film? So do you, are you working on any personal projects with that sort of thing? And are you, 
accumulating footage for that sort of a, a project or are you just shooting stock when you're out there when you're not on an assignment some of the most creative thing things i've done are just volunteer projects like for environmental groups and conservation stories so i i try to work on those as well and that's great so if you have some time off i think it's a great opportunity for anybody with a camera or a video camera you know to offer to try and help help locals on important causes because you know the tools we have um, are, are critical to those sort of yeah, I mean, that storytelling and, and putting those issues out in front of people in a really responsible, awesome way, and is you can't replace that, right? I feel it's the one way to give a little bit, maybe give back a little bit that uh, is important. In addition to doing all this wildlife cinematography work that you do for all these different companies, and I'll put a link in our show notes to your IMDb page because, like I said, it's just like, I don't even know so what, much I don't even stuff. know what that is, Michael. Really? <laughs> So I don't know what it is either. I I don't know what IMDb stands for, but it's basically an it's a listing of everything that you've worked on. There's a list of everything, and it may not be everything because I think you can go in and edit it. But I'm not kidding you. There's stuff that goes back to 2000. 2000. I see the greatest wildlife show on earth. Wow. Do you remember that? <laughs> that was in the year 2000. And then there's 2007, 2002, 2003. I better I mean, take a look. That could be embarrassing. No. <laughs> that, no, it's all really good stuff. More than not, you're very successful at accomplishing the story goals that they send you out for, right? But I'm sure you got to run into situations where, you know what, that I just couldn't get it. You know, the animal's not there. The season was wrong. The weather conditions didn't allow for it. Is there one thing, one of those things that stands out in your mind that's like, man, they just, they spent all this money, they sent this whole crew to do this thing, and we never were able to get it. Is there one of those that you can think of? You know, it's it's remarkably few, but I, I know one in particular, yeah, um, in recent years we went to film polar bears fishing for salmon, which was a fairly new event. Yeah. And uh, the heavy rains that year, so the, the polar bears couldn't fish, didn't didn't get the story um but yeah it's it's incredibly rare i'm hard pressed to think of other times so what often happens is the story you went out for isn't exactly what you find mm-hmm. but you find a good you know alternate mm-hmm. sometimes it's uh it's it's even better than you'd even dreamed about so yeah we uh, i've had that happen quite a few times make lemons out of lemonade exactly and then also, if you got the power of these big production companies behind you, they've done so much research. They're going to put you in any particular spot to succeed, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, we're you know we're usually in good places, but you know sometimes you just you luck into things, and you've got you've got to capitalize on that and and not you know keep putting blinders on when a great opportunity presents itself really stop and think, okay, maybe we should switch gears. And do what you do have we need? a good example of that? You know, probably one of the, uh, I got to work on planet earth, which was wonderful. And I worked on oceans and mountains and, and caves. And, um, but we were out, we were out trying to film whales off the coast of Venezuela and just struggling and struggling and no luck at all. You know, one day 10 miles away, I saw a, a tuna boat and nothing was happening. And then I saw all of a sudden the diesel comes pouring out of the stack and I thought those guys are chasing something let's go see what it is and and that turned out to be a great whale shark feeding event that we just lucked into by watching the tuna fishermen 
And that was the opening of the Ocean series for planet Earth. So there you go. Wow. We never did find the whales that we were after. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're doing something like that, are you on your own boat at that point too? Or yeah. are you traveling with a crew? You just join a boat that's already out there. Or were you in your own boat? No, this was in this case, it was a charter boat that we were working on. Yeah, that was yeah, a fishing charter boat. Worked that in that awesome. area. Is that a liveaboard too? No, that was shore based. So. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I prefer the liveaboard. I got to say, even though you're going slower, I, it fits my style and I think wildlife better. I'd rather go slow and stay long mm-hmm. than go fast and burn a lot of fuel and and, right. and be tied to that dock and not necessarily get to the really wild places. So you were telling me just to go revisit your boat thing one more time. You were telling me your boat burns, what, a gallon, a gallon per hour? A gallon per hour, yeah. Per hour, which is like crazy because there's some of these guys that can go out there and burn what? A hundred an hour. A yeah. hundred an hour. Right, right. So you're relying on the motor will get you there. It'll put you there, right? Mm-hmm. But you also have sales too, right? Right. Yeah. How yeah. hard was it to figure all that stuff out? Be, you know, again, you're from Wyoming. It's not like you ever grew up around this stuff. Right. How did you learn that? Uh, fortunately, again, I was filming. I got to do a trip in the Bahamas, and uh, and the skipper had had uh, had thrown his back out, and we were on we were on a catamaran, a sailboat, and he was sitting there telling me how to adjust the sails. I thought, wow, this is great. Really? Yeah. So um, it was just that one thing, and you're like, I think I could figure this out. Yeah, it was. And but I I've, I've just been so lucky. I mean, I've I got to go into the Antarctica across with some really great sailors and, and asked them you know, endless questions. And, but what it just really amazed me at, inexpensively with a small boat, you can go anywhere in the world. I mean, come on, that is really, that's really attractive to someone like right. me that likes wild places. Is, is it scary to go to, okay, I went to Antarctica and I was on a ship that was, I say a ship, I'm sure you call it a ship. I don't know, there's probably a hundred rooms. Right. So it's not like this massive cruise ship. But it's not a little sailboat. Right. So compare, I'm on a ship that's on 100 rooms. What If you're on a sailboat, how big is that sailboat going? Did you go from Tierra de Fuego and, right. and you sail across and yeah. you're going to the peninsula over there? Right. It how big is this boat? 55 feet long. So that's not very long. No. How scary was that? Because I tell you what, it was the most... It's the roughest water I've ever been in, but obviously that changes every day, right? You never know. I've talked right. to people that said, oh, it was flat water both going and coming back. And I'm right. like, mm, nah. <laughs> it wasn't the case for me. How scary is it to be on a small boat like that in the, that kind of water? It is scary initially, but once you realize that, uh, you know, the, the capabilities of a well-found sailboat are amazing. You know, they have really? a big keel mm-hmm. and and obviously it requires knowledge as well and, and don't don't take it for granted. Don't ever underestimate the ocean, but it's, it's doable. It's totally doable. And people you meet along the way that are out doing it with small 30, 35 foot sailboats that have been around the world and, you know, on a shoestring. And it is possible to go to some really off the grid places, you know, very affordably. Could you take your, the boat you have now, your, yeah. your forever boat? Yeah. Would you take that to Antarctica? Absolutely. It, really? The boat's capable of it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So... Is that in your future, you think? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm so taken with Alaska that that's definitely on the right. on the radar immediately. But um, possibly, yeah, it's great to have that option. I'm really intrigued by, you know, I love coastal Alaska. There's a lot of places that I haven't seen on out in the Aleutian Islands and, and north into the Arctic. So that that's the place that it's really calling at the moment. That's awesome. Okay, so speaking of boats, I've just kind of dilly-dallied and I keep going off on tangents, <laughs> but that's what these podcasts are good for. 
you have worked on Deadliest Catch as, so it says right here on IMDb, it says Director of Photography, 148 episodes, and I don't even know if that's right, because it says from 2012 to 2020, but I know you've been on it longer than that, right? Yeah, I think this is year 10 or 11 for me, yeah. It says the Amatuli? Amatuli. Amatuli Chase Boat. Yeah. So you're Director of Photography on this boat, which means what? <laughs> uh uh, Deadliest Catch has been has been great. It's the one real wildlife, non wildlife thing that I've done. Uh-huh. I looked at this these shows one day, and I was just so taken by these guys out there in the ocean, you know, in really in really amazing conditions. Um, yeah, so uh, they they gave me a job miraculously. I think they were just looking for anybody that would <laughs> that would go. That you know, the, the guy the guy that hired me uh, said, you know, hey, I just want somebody who can push the red button and not quit. <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. But you're using some pretty awesome camera gear out there, right. and the talent that you have to have. I mean, yeah, you're pushing a red button, but I mean, the shots you get are just like making it, that show just look so awesome and so dramatic and so. I mean, it just helps with that whole storytelling thing, right? Right. They've really upped their game with the cameras, which is great, and that's exciting. Everyone, everybody's trying to push the envelope, make it look better and better. So it, yeah, when I started, it was literally put a Ziploc bag around a <laughs> handy cam and, and hang on. Really? Yeah, it was. That's, I'm not kidding. And then then we moved up to some of these heads that try and keep shots more stable on the ocean. But we're still. I was still for five years. I had waves checked over me and you know chipping ice off the cameras and and all that. But then we upgraded to these modern gimbals. Which are the kind of the large ball that people might see hanging under a helicopter. And that is uh, just, a, it's just been a huge breakthrough because they keep all access stable. So you can be out in the ocean in 30 foot seas, just getting pummeled and the shots look amazing. Anywhere you point the camera, it's just rock steady. So it's been a, it's been a game changer. And now instead of being out there having waves checked over me, I feel bad because I'm inside with a little lap, with a little keyboard and a jog stick and, and unfortunately, somebody's out there wiping the lens <laughs> with a squeegee. <laughs> we haven't we haven't solved that yet, despite lots of attempts. That's amazing. Starting out, obviously, you're into adventure big time. You can tell just from the stories we've talked about, the things that you've done, just not having any apprehension to be a scuba diving or climbing 17,000-foot peaks. Was that first time being out there with a Ziploc baggie and a camera and just holding on, was that a scary experience or what was that mindset to go out there and do that? Yeah, no, no doubt. The first time I went out there, uh, I was scared, flat out scared. I thought, you know, what am I getting myself into? I mean, it seemed like, you know, they, everybody would just quit. And, and uh, I thought, well, gee, I haven't, I haven't quit in the past. Uh, I hope I don't now, but uh, you never know. But yeah, so that's part of it, I guess. I, I don't like to think that I'm an adrenaline junkie, I think. Uh, I like to go to amazing places, and, and this is a way to do it. So mm. I'm respectful of the ocean, and yeah, don't ever wanna, don't ever wanna think you know not re- if you don't respect it. Yeah, it'll 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 spank you. Having all that now, I mean, so in 2000, when when did you start that? Like 2000, let's say 2010, 10 years ago. Did you have all the boat experience at that point, or did you have some boat experience that gave you a little bit more? Like, okay, I can do this, or was that Going out on that boat, was that one of the first times to be out no, I'd, in I'd, that crazy water? Uh, I'd been in some 
And yeah, some pretty big seas, but nothing like that. You know, the Bering Sea in the middle of the winter, man, it really throws up consistently some big seas. It's the it's legendary out there. I'm trying to think, uh, I I, did, I had got to do some trips in Antarctica, so across the Drake Passage. So, and, you know, been lucky to see some see some great and it's spectacular visually. I mean, there's nothing more dramatic than huge seas and crashing and crashing waves. So, well, you you and I were talking the other day. It's like there's no time limit either, too, right? You don't know when it's going to be good. So you can be working at 8 o'clock one morning right. and then have a little time off, but you can be back on at noon, and then you can be back on at 9 p.m., and then you can be on in the middle of the night. Right. You were like, this is one of those jobs where you just don't get a lot of sleep. And that's right, yeah. it's uh, it's That's what I think is the most challenging part of it is we're just going around the clock. We may be, you know, for a month uh, just just rolling from boat to boat. Looking for, we're actually looking for the worst weather out there, um, you know, which is kind of, yeah, I wonder about that when you're on the ocean, but uh, that's dramatic waves. That's what, that's what, that's what I'm shooting. So uh, we're just going around the clock. By the end of it, you feel like you're in a washing machine. It's just on the spin cycle for forever, but it's really amazing. At, at the same time, I mean, we're seeing whales out there and albatross soaring and amazing bird life. So... Are you able to film a lot of that with the gimbal? We shoot lots of gorgeous nature scenes for shot, you know, just, you know, transition type shots. Amazingly, you know, you can be out there getting thrashed with that gimbal and shoot time-lapse moonrise and it's rock steady, you know. It's, really? Yeah. So that has just been a complete game changer right. in technology. It's got to be so much fun. What you're able to dream up, it's kind of almost possible, right? I mean, yeah. I'm sure you can dream up some stuff that would be kind of impossible, but for the most part, having that gimbal and having that, you know, if you had did have, have are you ever out there when it's flat calm? Yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say flat calm, but when it gets calmer. Right. And you're uh, on a pretty big boat. Right. right. Yeah, 100 foot boat. So yeah. this is, I mean, it has to be pretty significant waves to move that thing around or no um no <laughs> it's amazing how, how 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 that boat can seem to get small when the seas get really big i'm sure yeah it, so yeah we can we can get thrown around pretty good yeah but sometimes it calms off and the ocean has lots of moods out there and we get up near the ice at times and that's always amazing because then there's the ice pack the fish they like to fish right on the edge of the ice pack and there's walruses up there and yeah, it's really and it's constantly moving too right the ice pack is constantly in constantly. flux right? right so it's something you're always the boat you're on is a chase boat right? right essentially so you're going to i don't know all the cast of characters anymore i used to watch yeah. that show all the time uh -huh. and i haven't watched it in the last couple of years just because i don't have cable but if you're going to go photograph, what is it? The, um, the Northwestern. Yeah, let's say the Northwestern. <laughs> they might be over here, but then they say, oh, well, you need to go film another one of these guys, and they're 20 miles away. Do you right. guys just pick up and go? And it can be any kind of conditions to go get it? Is that how that works? I mean, are yeah. you just floating around and just getting the best shots of whoever, whenever, or how does that work? A lot, of, a lot of the job is 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 planning strategically how to get from one to the other efficiently. Because uh, if you're trying, if if there's if there's freezing weather, for example, and you're going into the spray, you're going to build a lot of ice, mm -hmm. and and that's something all the boats have to deal with. You have to get up there and chip off ice, or you can get too heavy and just roll them over. So a lot, of, a lot of my job is is strategic planning on trying to work with the weather, getting good forecasts, and realizing how we can efficiently sort of you know, get around to all the boats, be be at the right place. We can't miss those big storms. That's why we're out there. 
So a lot of strategy. Yeah, I'm sure. It's got to be like, I mean, it's a constant chess game, I would assume, where you're just like playing. I mean, you're playing against Mother Nature all the time. Right. Right? I do. So do you, you have to make sure you get to every boat, help tell those stories for every boat, and whether it's they're being super successful and kicking butt or they just aren't having a good year and it's just and all your shots are those beauty shots that help tell that story because there's also crews or videographers on each one of the ships too right yeah so there's two people there there's there's a producer with the captain and there's and there's a shooter on the deck so they're they're running they're also going around the clock and they have cameras stationed strategically around the boats that are filming at all times in case there's some mishap or you know wave crashing over and that kind of thing so yeah, it's everyone is is just going going nonstop, and we try and keep. It's a you know, part of our uh, the chase boat's job is to give to give spare gear to all the things that they break. So I have lots of lots of spare gear, and we float it over from boat to boat, and then they'll throw a hook and catch it and pull up their spare gear, and yeah, and and on we go to the next one. You were saying that you can get super close too, right? You're running the fifty to one thousand Canon lens on that gimbal. No, we're running a twenty-five to two fifty. Okay, so, but you you were telling me the other day you could get up to twenty. What was yeah. it? Twenty feet or twenty yeah. yards or something? Yeah, twenty feet. Yeah, away from one of those other boats. Right. That's very skilled driving. Obviously, that's right. that's. But uh, yeah, sometimes when we're trying to do, especially shots, we're very close out there, and and uh, everyone's a little white knuckle with the driving. But uh, I think it's also it's a nice it's a nice break. The the the, the skippers, the crab fishermen. I think they like it. They, it's it's a little different and challenging for everybody, and yeah, it's great fun. Do you find yourself every year saying, "How can I up it up my game this year? Absolutely. How can I do something different?" Yes, absolutely. Everybody on the show does. We just feel like you know we can't we can't we can't settle for what we have, and I think that's what makes you know that's what makes that sets that show apart. Everyone's really really cares about the craft and the craft of storytelling. I think we get hung up. I do. I love great images, but at the end of the day, that that story is what's most important, and they get that, and everybody's working toward that. I get hung up on that too. I just want to, you know, and I think it's coming from a stills background. It's just that one image, right? So it's really easy to get hung up on. But that story is, it is. It's so important and so hard to find. Sometimes they're so easy to find. Sometimes it just drops in your lap. But how do you change your game out there? How do you? Is it equipment? Is it reviewing the footage you shot this year and say, man, next year I want to try this? Exactly. Yeah, and we've, we've done everything out there. I mean, we I used to get in the water quite a bit out there. Hold on, what? Yeah. <laughs> you used to get in the water with scuba? Or? I used to get in the water with snorkel or and sometimes with scuba and, you know, have them drop, dropping camera pots. And, and we just finally decided, you know what, that is just too dangerous. So, um, so now I'm trying all kinds of remote things to get those in water shots and, uh, trying, trying to be more sensible and do it safely. Do they have like underwater s- controlled things or are you talking about just like attaching a camera to a crab pot or, or uh, probably both? All, all of the above. Yeah. So floating systems, you know, t- it's, uh, trying to keep cameras upright and stable so they can get their own shots. So yeah, I've, I've spent endless time developing all kinds of different techniques to to have a camera that's sitting there on its own get a good shot in 20 foot seas do they give you like a wish list and they're like okay shane you need to just 
create something that does this. <laughs> you know, I think everyone on that show is is pushing the envelope and and they support us, which is great. Um, yeah, I think they do everything we can. And sometimes, you know, we've, there's a lot of gear destroyed on that show every year, <laughs> but, uh, it all comes from people trying, trying to push the envelope and, and, uh, and make it better. Right. Yeah. Oh man. But also keeping one foot on that story thing. That's, uh, that's, everybody's on board with that. Yeah. That sounds like a ton of fun. It is. <laughs> It sounds like, I mean, it'd be something that would be, I would be scared. When I went to Antarctica, I was scared to death. I'm not going to lie. I've just, I, you just don't know, right? You don't know what you don't know. And then how do you deal with that? Right. It's just butterflies. But I tell everybody, anytime I go anywhere, if I don't have butterflies, it's probably not a good thing. Right. If you get too complacent or too comfortable, I've never had an issue anywhere I went, but I, I want those butterflies. I want that kind of adrenaline kind of thing, but Antarctica was a step above just because of the danger involved. And I got to think it's that way up there every year when you go onto that ship, right? It is. um, Although I'll say, and I don't want to sound cavalier, but I don't do things that I consider dangerous at all. And I think that's odd because my wife would say, you know, that I'm not a risk taker at all. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'd like to think that if if there's a dangerous thing, we're doing it safely. Right. So one of the things, I guess, I learned a lot from cave diving. That was was a really good aha moment for me. And uh, it, it might help others that listen, you know, that do this kind of thing. So I'll mention it. And there they really developed the concept of, I'm kind of a nerd, sorry, but accident analysis. They really look carefully at what's dangerous. And it's, it's uh, and, and, and you try and, you know, deal with those things effectively and have good strategy. Um, So I kind of do that with everything. Obviously, if you're going into a new environment, which we do regularly, you've got to learn that from the locals. You've got to learn, you got to be humble enough to ask them, you know, what's, and and it's often surprising. I mean, of course, people that come to Alaska are worried about being eaten by a bear, but statistically that's not much. Not going to happen. Yeah, it's not a great risk, right? Right, right. So to learn what actually is dangerous is the important thing. Which could be hypothermia or weather and that kind of stuff is going to get you way before a bear does. Exactly. Right. Yeah. What is it about cave diving that is that it's, you can't return, right? Is that the biggest danger where you get somewhere where you're just like, I don't know how to get out of here. Is that the number one thing? Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously running out of air is a nightmare. So you have all these protocols. So you have redundancy, you have backups. So, you know, you go in with three lights and you always have your line to the surface and, and there's a protocol and, and you train. So I guess that's what I think is important to bring in into your safety mindset. And that might be, you know, if you're, if you're hiking down a trail in bear country, bring bear spray, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. make some noise, you know, those kind of things. Um, it's different with each different thing you do, but I think the idea of approaching things you know, in a safe manner, is, there's a there's a lot that you know translates from one thing to the next. And I'm, I think you and I were talking in the field the other day. The that crew or that production company that's doing all the work for Deadliest Catch. I mean, your safety is number one, right? right? Everybody. I mean, almost too much. Where it's like, oh my gosh, they're just making us do this and this and this. But it's all in the name of just keeping everybody safe, which is awesome. Exactly. Yeah. We need to, and we need to look, yeah, look out for one another. Absolutely. So that's the great thing on Deadliest Catch. A lot of the, you know, any, anybody that's new, 
they'll they'll feel like they've they've been well coached and well looked after. So no one's being thrown out into some crazy environment that they're totally ill-equipped for. They're still going to be odd and <laughs> scared a few times, but uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think we have a real good safety record. It. Uh, I think if I could have any job, yours would be the most fun, right? Because <laughs> you're not on one of those ships. You're not dealing with all the drama right. that's going on on the ship. And then how does it work with? Are they just taking? Are the camera people just taken in as part of the crew, and they're just fed with the crew and that kind of stuff? Or do those camera people and produce the producer and camera operator? Are they kind of on their own and they have to do their own food and their own everything, or do they just become part of that crew? They're part of the crew. Okay. They're chucked in. So yeah, the, any any weaknesses will be exposed. <laughs> so anytime that yeah. that crew's going to bed, the camera guys are going to bed. Yes. Guys and gals. But when they're going to work, they're going to work. Yeah, but but sometimes that's one of the things with all this all this digital media now. I mean, you're off I'm often setting alarm clock download setting downloads, setting alarm clocks, you get up throw your eyes open, put on another car to download, you have all your you know, log your notes and so forth. So it it can it can sleep can be a really precious commodity. And you're out there for what you said eight weeks? Well two Two at least four week seasons a year, so yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a good boat ride. But now you've got you've gone from a Ziploc bag holding on on the deck <laughs> to now sitting in the cabin. Are you sitting with the captain in that cabin, or I do am. you have a different cabin? I am. I'm sitting right in the wheelhouse. I, I feel a little bit bad about it. I really do. Especially oh, I when I look. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> I look. I look down there and see the poor guy wiping the lens with the squeegee. But uh, no, it's it's really cush now, and uh, and it's so amazing the camera. It's just. We've got the technology where we can, you know, film on all different sides, and yeah, it's just incredible. But that's like earned. I mean, you earned it, that. It that is, is hard ten years of like trial and error, and build this and do that, and obviously someone sunk a bunch of money into the equipment because that stuff's not cheap. Right. But it's your knowledge to make it all work to yeah. put it all together. Yeah. And you were telling me it's like some sort of a the gimbal, but then it's mounted in the center so you can kind of go to either side of the boat, right? Right. I mean, I was really worried. I mean, these things are incredibly expensive. Um, you know, the, some, the, the the gimbal that I'm shooting with is worth three quarters of a million dollar. And you think, okay, you're taking that into probably one of the worst environments on the planet and you have to come back with the thing intact. And it's scary. I mean, because the power of those waves, I've seen, I've seen those waves that'll just rip you know, half inch steel blow out windows, just every window out of the front of a, of a crab boat and rip half inch steel to shreds. So the power is just amazing. So that was a big part of my concern is, can we take this thing out there and find a way to do it safely and bring it back and knock on wood so far so good. But there've been some times where it's been close. Yeah. So luckily we have a system now where we can elevate it. So when the weather gets really severe, where things go bad. Last year we lost steering and we're just rolling around, just getting worked. And we could bring the camera up and keep it above the waves, fortunately. When you do that, when you lose steering, what happens? How, do they have to try to fix it on the fly or do you? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we had to fix it on the fly. Luckily we had a very uh, good crew along. And But well, when you lose steering, I mean, you're, you tend to lay right in the ditch, they call it, in the trough. So you're very vulnerable because you're sight onto the waves. And then, uh, then the big breakers just start rolling over the deck and that, that gets, yeah, that gets pretty scary when you, 
when you when you see your three quarters of a million dollar camera just uh just barely above the waves yeah <laughs> man the pucker factor on something like that has got to be huge yeah wow yeah oh it just sounds like so much fun i mean i want to go watch the show just to just to look i mean so you're shooting the shots of all the boats so if you're looking at a boat those are your shots yeah then you were telling me you've got the front and the back. I mean, shooting head-on shots, shooting away shots. I right. mean, how do you identify the shots that you're getting, I guess, is my question. Well, basically, you know, we really want to show um, what it's like out there. And most of the shots, um, you know, I don't, I, before I get too big of an ego, it's just it's the, the shot that cuts from one boat scene to another. You know, is, then you have a beauty shot of the boat. So often we just want to see the bow crashing through the waves. Sometimes we're, we want to see specific things that the crew is doing or the ice building on the boats or whatever the story is, uh, whatever sea conditions they're dealing with, whatever strategy they have for fishing, we try and cover all that. But yeah, now, now the mount allows us to film from all sides of our boat because the camera moves. And uh, the gimbal moves from side to side. That's a huge advantage. Now we can go and do circles around the boats and and maintain, you know, film coverage the whole time. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really gotten amazing. It's got to be fun. But uh, hey, I'm still be... having fun with GoPros. We have GoPros and <laughs> do all kinds of stuff with you know, you? cameras. Cameras bobbing in the water. Some of the some of the best ones are are, are you know this uh, you know this pole system that I developed to keep to keep the you know lots of cameras that are above and below the water. We have GoPros pointing every which way cuz you never know sometimes they get turned around so we just have lots of GoPros running, you know. Really? Yeah. No. Do you try the 360 one yet? Have you Yes, we have done the 360. Does yeah. it work? Yeah. Um it's great on the crab boat. So I haven't done it uh from the chase boat. But they got some real nice VR and uh I got to do a a, a, a a virtual reality shoot in Antarctica with leopard seals as well. So that was a that was a first for me. And was that with the it wasn't with the GoPro 360. It was probably with like one of those balls with yeah. Yeah. cameras yeah. all around it. Yep, that's what it was. Yeah, so it's got to be cool. It was it was really neat. And the and the results from that, I will say, it was that that's one of those things where the audience can really experience what it's like to dive with a leopard seal and. And have that because the leopard seals swirl around you and icebergs everywhere and penguins and it's really an immersive, you know, it's very exciting thing to share with an audience. I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. I have one more question. What advice do you have for some up and comer that, I mean, what do you tell young people that they're like, man, what you're doing is so awesome. I want to do this one day. What can somebody do to kind of put themselves in that right position to get to to do what you're doing? I would say there, there's no single answer because, I mean, I've seen people come at, at this business from every conceivable angle. Uh, I would say take steps. Um, and if, if whatever you want to do, sort of begin with the end in mind. And I would also encourage you to go talk to people that are actually doing it. That's what saved me when I was young. Um, I went up to Wolfgang Bear and I basically blurted out, you know, hey, I, I want to do what you do. <laughs> and I got a very strange look, but then he sat down. And, and I think most people would with, the, with someone that wants to do, wants to either change what they're doing or is inspired to do something, you know, make a plan, make it happen. It'll be different for everyone. Right. But, you know, 
we all only get one shot at this. So yeah, let's live it up. Make it count. Yep. So you don't, I don't think you do much on social media, but <laughs> we do, I know you have, um, I know you like pictures that I put on Instagram. Yeah, so yeah. I, I know you're on yeah, Instagram, but you probably don't post that much. I don't. Yeah. Uh, it, well, how can you when you're out on a boat in the middle of Southeast Alaska with no cell service, right? Yeah. So, or up in the Bering Sea. I mean, I'm sure you guys have communications, but that's the last thing on your mind to put a picture on social media. But this IMDB thing, I will put a link in the show notes. I've taken a bunch of pictures of Shane over the course of the last couple of days that we'll put up just so you can kind of see his camera set up and see what you look like if you're okay with that. And then, uh, it's just, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for spending the time. Thanks, Michael. It's been great. Hope it's not 20 years. Till next time. No, no, it won't be now. <laughs> now that I know how to find you or how to maybe weasel in on your boat. And hey, can I come out for a week? Let's go for a boat ride. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always... Thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town. Mm -mm. Round and round the world we'll go.